Well, it's been a very beautiful day today, hasn't it? Especially when you come from Canada. And I uh, want to thank the Lord for the nice day and uh, the even nicer time. Uh, we went out to lunch with Pastor Hunter and his lovely wife and uh, adorable daughter. And we had a great time. And just want to thank everybody, all your kindness and your hospitality. I could never live here. I think I'd last about six months and I'd die a pleasant death, but it would be uh, a little bit too much food, but, uh, but we very much appreciate all your kindness to us. Again, would you take your Bible, and by now, hopefully it's falling open naturally at Hebrews chapter 6. Maybe just uh, a brief review of this morning. We kind of gave the image that we were going to visit a house. Uh, 6 Hebrews Lane, and um, in chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, we kind of just went up on the porch and knocked on the door. And the preacher of this sermon, not of this sermon, but the sermon of the book of Hebrews, brings up the issue of the spiritual childishness, the spiritual immaturity of the congregation that he is writing to. And in the physical realm, sometimes that's kind of cute when uh, kids act like babies. We don't want that to happen too often, but every once in a while it's kind of cute, but not so for the believer. God gives new life. And he expects that life to grow and to mature and to develop. And just like when you go to the doctor, if you do have a little one, they've got a chart at a certain age. They should be a certain height and a certain weight and all those kinds of things. It's the same for the believer. Uh, There are expectations. This is not a retirement home, the church. This is not a club med kind of thing where we're saved and we're happy and we know it. And uh, it's just good to be with the people of God, and all those things are true. But uh, not only is this a place of worship and fellowship, but, it, but it's training. Uh, we, we're becoming equipped so that we might be able to live faithfully uh, in this world for our generation. And so it's very important that we grow up. I don't know how many times my parents told me to grow, grow up, And even after 49 years of marriage, once in a while, my wife tells me to grow up. And some of my grandchildren are old enough that they tell me to grow up, too. And uh, I always thought being grandfather was an opportunity to be a kid again, but even they'll tell me to grow up. And we are to grow up. Now, what's striking about the passage is that the problem is not some kind of congenital problem, it, it, it's a deep spiritual problem. It's, it's a, a hardening of the ears so that we don't listen like we should, that we become lazy, we become kind of hearing words but not heeding the words that we're hearing. And for various reasons, we get tired of hearing the word and responding to it. And so that is us at the door, and we're knocking. And uh, what is the pastor going to do with a congregation like this? How is he going to care for them? And then the door is open to the house in chapter 6, and we're going to, in the course of our time, look at five rooms in the house. Um, When we came Friday afternoon to the missionary house to stay for the week, I looked through the house and I thought, oh, this is interesting. There's a number of rooms here. There's a study, there's a kitchen, there's a dining room, there's a bathroom, there's a bedroom and and a living room. I wonder which of these rooms we're going to need this week. And, of course, the answer is all of them. Uh, Each are designed to facilitate good living. They are not at cross-purposes with each other. You need the bathroom as much as you need the kitchen, and you need the living room, and you need the bedroom, and so on, 
And all of these things go together so that we will have, uh, in the good sense, a good life. And it's the same with this passage. The pastor who is preaching this sermon is wisely dealing with his people. And he's taking us from room to room to room. And, and one of our tendencies is, is to stop at one of the rooms and say, Whoa, I don't think I really need this. And as usual, the pastor knows better what we need and what we don't need. So we came to the first room this morning in Sunday school, and we were shocked to find that it was cordoned off with yellow police tape. Now, that's not in the text. That's my um, bringing into the text something that isn't there. But um, hopefully we saw why, why it was a crime scene, because we must always be careful that there is no interpretation of the Bible that keeps us from, feel, from feeling and experiencing the full brunt of the Bible. And uh, the application this morning was that God gives both promises and he gives warnings. They both are divine. They both come from the same author. They both have a demand of faith. And I'm never to pit the promises of God against the warnings of God, nor am I to pit the warnings of God against the promises of God. I'm never to come to the Bible and say, that warning's not for me, unless it's, you know, for children or for ladies. Uh, By the way, Pastor Greg, uh, I have been invited to the Coffee and Courage group to speak, so... Not this week, but uh, another time when I was here. So, a long time ago. No, not this. Not this week. No. So, <laughs> I obviously made an impression, didn't I? Oh, he did. <laughs> but we need to see that the Bible is speaking to me in its commands in its historical narrative, in its Proverbs, in its Psalms, in its promises, and in its warnings. And if you can hear a warning from the scriptures, you can shrug your shoulders and say, so what? Do you know what that is? A sign of spiritual immaturity. You might think you're too big for that, you're too grown up for that, but you're not. You see, as I mentioned in the illustration this morning about the road, the mark of a good driver is that he or she responds to both the promises of the road and the warnings of the road. He's not a guy that can, or a gal that can stop at the promises, the hotel or the donuts or whatever it is, and then just kind of boot through the warnings going too fast or whatever it might be. That person isn't a good driver because the warnings are given so that I will arrive safely and the journey will be successful. And in the narrow way that I'm on as a believer, God gives both promises and warnings. And they come towards me and I'm to experience their full force and I'm to respond in obedient faith to both those. Now, the second room tonight is the specific warning we have here in Hebrews chapter 6. And we want to unpack that and see what it's saying to us. But we need to remember again, and hopefully, I don't know if you did today, but at some point, hopefully you can read through the whole book, and you will see that it goes from exposition to exhortation, to exposition, to exhortation. And the, and the theme of the book is Jesus Christ. It doesn't get better than Jesus. There's nothing out there better than Jesus. There's no religion. There is no pleasure. There is no ideology. There is no philosophy. There is nothing out there better than Jesus. And I must be convinced of that. And everything in this book is better because of Jesus, better covenant, better promises, better this, better that, better the other thing. 
And that is the exposition. And he goes through the Old Testament and he says, do you know Jesus? He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the Levitical high priest. He's better than everything that you thought would give you life. And he fulfills all those things and brings them to their perfection. You can't go back. You must never go back. Interspersed with that exposition are exhortations. And they are in the form of five warning passages. Roughly, without being specific, they are found in chapter 2, chapter 4, here in chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 12. These warning passages weave in together. They build on each other. And like I say, if you can solve the problem of who the guy is in chapter 6, that doesn't solve the problem because it's all working together. Two, then four, then six, then ten, then twelve. And I must hear those warnings for my everlasting good. Now, we're in chapter 6, and it's not because it's the most difficult of the warning passages. It's just the one that has been kind of the focus down through the history of the church. But what we want to do is look at this passage, and we want to see how, how does the pastor of, who is preaching this sermon, how does he minister to people who are struggling, who are weary, who, who are, to frankly admit it, are tired, tired of resisting the culture, tired of the drag of their own depravity and sin, constantly trying to get them away from Christ, tired of fleeing from the devil and his seductions, tired of always having to evaluate everything by the light of the word of God, tired of being tired. You ever been there? Just tired of being tired, sick of being sick? And those are the people who are very vulnerable to pack it in. They come at some point in their Christian experience and say, you know, it's not worth it. I don't need this. I'm going to pack it in. Now, as we come to this passage, we want to see, first of all, the caution. Secondly, the consequences. And then thirdly, the cause. Hopefully those three points will make sense about 8.30 or 9 o'clock when I'm finished. You'll be finished a lot sooner, so no, we won't uh, test your sanctification that much. Okay then, first of all, the caution. What is the warning? Well, he tells us in verse 6 that we need to be careful that we do not fall away. Now, this word is, is just found here in the New Testament. And again, it's one of those Greek words you crazy glue together. Two words to make a new word. And, and it literally means alongside and to fall. It, it, it gives the idea of like being in the Boston Marathon and partway through at mile 14, you just drop out. You just quit. You don't run anymore. Legs are too sore. Tired of the heat, the pounding of the pavement, the breathing. You desperately want some oxygen in your lungs. And you quit. Now, the technical term for this is apostasy. And uh, apostasy is a deliberate, willful, repudiating, rejecting, and renouncing of a previous profession of faith in Jesus Christ. To fall away means to deliberately, willfully renounce and reject what you previously came, claimed to believe. Apostasy isn't falling into sin. We all struggle with that. 
Our, our, our spiritual growth graph won't just be like this. It'll be ups and downs and all this kind of stuff. But we should be moving forward, as uh, the brother read tonight from Romans 8. We've been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And there should be increasing likeness to Jesus Christ. Now, we had four kids. We have 11 grandchildren. They don't all grow at the same rate, the same pace. And, you know, they kind of slow at two, and then they pick it up. And then, you know, you think, wow, this is going great. And then they hit teenage years, and you got to work through that. And, and boy, our son, David, was the best two-year-old I've ever met. He was the worst three-year-old I ever met. <laughs> no explanation, except a baby came along, his younger sister, Bethany's mom, Debbie. Well, that's life, and things come into our life, trials and difficulties and problems and situations, and true believers struggle. And this is not implying any way, in any way that this just goes easy, or as our grandson says, easy peasy. And uh, that's why God gives to the church uh, pastors and elders and deacons, uh, older brothers and sisters to care for us and to help us as we travel along. But that is very different than saying, you know, I don't need this anymore. I'm just tired and fed up. I've been thinking about it. There's not a lot of proof, really, about this stuff. Yeah, there probably was a Jesus, but see the Jesus of the Bible? Those guys just made all this stuff up. And in my many years of being a Christian and being a pastor, the interesting thing I've found is that I've never met a person who really rejected the faith for intellectual reasons. There was always a moral reason. Always that they wanted a particular sin or sin in general rather than Jesus Christ. Now, as we go through the book of Hebrews, and we won't do that, we, we need to see that this concept of falling away is not just found in chapter 6. Well, we can just flip back, and uh, I'll quickly go through a few things. There's at least 12 to 15 different words in Hebrews that talk about the same thing as falling away. For example, in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape, in verse 3, if we neglect such great salvation? Chapter 3, verse 10. They always go astray in their heart. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, Chapter 10, verse 26. Oh, I said that, sorry. Uh, 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you need endurance. In chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And chapter 12, verse 25, 
See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is Moses, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Now you see that the whole book is dealing with this issue of falling away. And it's described in a, in a number of different ways. Because apostasy can come at you from a number, number of different ways. And so again in chapter 6, the, the, the pastor, as he preaches this sermon, he is warning them that they do not fall away. And as I mentioned this morning, and if you were to read through the book, you would see, he gives two examples of apostates. The first example is the adult nation of Israel who came out of Egypt and in the wilderness wanderings. For 38 of those 40 years, what did they do? They attended funerals. They wandered around and around and around till that whole adult generation died. First grandpa and grandma, then your aunt and your uncle, then your older brothers, and, and eventually you. Imagine 38 years going to funerals and frankly not doing much else. And throughout the book, he is using the nation of Israel as an example of apostasy. And then in chapter 12, he will use Jacob's brother Esau as an example of apostasy. And if you were in Sunday school, I gave you some examples from my own life. And I'm sure anybody who's been a believer for any length of time can give examples as well. The danger is real. It is not only a biblical fact, but it is a historical fact in our own experience that not everybody who was running the race with us will finish and cross the line. And we rejoice when a brother or sister passes on, don't we? And, and we don't have to wonder. I wonder if they're in heaven. I love it when you have a funeral that there's no doubt. There's no doubt. You know that they died in the Lord because they lived in the Lord. But the caution is very real. Secondly, we want to see the consequences. Why is apostasy or falling away such a serious, tragic thing? And the answer is found in verse 4. For it is impossible. And then he describes the person. And then in verse 6, and then they have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Those are sobering words, aren't they? Now, the word impossible is a Greek word um, that means ability with an alpha negative in the front, which makes it inability. It, it is a word of just what a person or a thing or a situation is in and of themselves capable of doing. Uh, this word impossible is found four times in the book of Hebrews. In verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. Amen? Yeah. That means that God couldn't lie even if he wanted to. It's not in his DNA. It is not part of his character. It is impossible for God to lie. It is also found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All of that Old Testament religious stuff 
was done day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year because it couldn't do what it was attempting to do. It could not remove the sin from the sinner. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. Another place where it is used is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can be a martyr. You can sell everything you have and go and live on a hill or a pole or a tree or a cave as a hermit. You can do all kinds of things to seek to please God, but it's impossible without faith, without saving, persevering faith. And that's why Hebrews 11 is there. Not just because these are neat Bible stories and we used to know them as kids and we tell them to our kids, but what you have all through the chapter are people who had a persevering faith in spite of their circumstance and their situation. So that brings us back to Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible, and then verse 6, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Now the question is, for who is it impossible? Is it impossible for the apostate? Or is it impossible for God? Let's start with the apostate. First of all, many people who walked away from the Lord don't really care about getting back. But what is interesting is that in the book of Hebrews, the two test cases of apostasy, the children of Israel and Esau both sought to repent. Children of Israel, the spies come back, the majority report of 10 is <laughs> it's a great land, but wow, there's giants in the land and we're just shrimpy little pygmies. And so they vote and they decide not to go in. And then Moses says, well, it's over. And then they decide, well, just a minute, we will go. We will go. And so they try to go in, and what happens? They get kind of whooped. They get beat. Now, the same with Esau. When Esau sold his birthright and his blessing, afterwards he sought it with tears. He, he, he desperately, why, is there not a blessing for me? And even Judas when he came to his senses, he goes back to the priest, he throws the 30 pieces of silver on the ground and says, what in the world have I done? I have betrayed innocent blood. So the impossibility is not primarily with the person. It is impossible for God to restore them again. Verse 6, and then having fallen away to restore them again to repentance. And then, of course, the verse 4, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Wow. Now, if we were to work through Hebrews 3 and 4, we would see that God took an oath. And he swore. Not that he said bad words and swore at the children of Israel. He swore, he took an oath, that they would never enter into his rest. Do you remember reading that? Sobering. And Esau wanted a blessing. and There was no blessing. 
he, he, he sold his blessing for the here and now, for a, a bowl of stew. He, he was a man of today. What, what, what difference is some blessing from God if I'm going to die before the day's out? And then when he came to his senses, it wasn't there to be had. So the consequences is very serious, isn't it? This warning is a very sobering thing. This is not a warning to say, oh, well, I wanted the elect, and, you know. This warning is saying, listen, Don, once you're in the game, you better not get out. Because if you do, you cannot get back in again. Well, that's the consequences. It is impossible for God to restore you to repentance. Now, the question, of course, is what, why? What's the cause? And our text fortunately tells us, doesn't it? Why would it be impossible for God to restore a sinner like me to repentance? And he says in verse 6, it's impossible, verse 4, then have them falling away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now the Bible makes it very, very clear that God loves people. He's patient. He's kind. He's long-suffering. He's a pursuing God. He's a God who calls people again and again and again. But God does not love any person more than he loves his son. And in a sense, what the Bible is saying here and in other places, it is saying is, listen, there are all kinds of things that believers sadly do and God is gracious and merciful. David and his adultery. And in fact, when you read through Hebrews 11, uh, at, at the end he says, you know, if I had more time, if the clock wasn't, you know, staring me in the face, I could tell you about the faith of Samson. And you go, what? Or Jephthah. And there's some of the people in the Bible that you say, Wow. They've done, they've done some very wicked things. But God still sees in his children saving, persevering faith. But there is a line. God is not of infinite mercy. And you see, the problem with apostasy is, it's not that you had a one-night fling with some guy you have said some terrible things about the Lord Jesus Christ. You have said, if you fall away, that he's not worthy of your effort. It's not worth suffering for him. It's not worth persevering for him. It's not worth... In fact, he says, it, it's like crucifying Jesus Christ all over again. You see, what he's saying is for a person to have professed faith in Christ and then renounce it, it is they are agreeing with the original people and their verdict with regards to Jesus Christ. They mocked him. They spit on him. They slapped him. They hung him on a cross. And even on that cross, they mocked and said, if you're the son of God, come down. And they blindfolded him and slapped him and said, now tell us which one of us slapped you. They came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ did not deserve to live. In fact, Jesus Christ was an inconvenience in their life and in their religion and their way of doing things. And they had to get rid of Jesus Christ. They wanted nothing more to do with him. And Jesus, through the preacher, is saying, Woo, don't cross that line. 
The Bible says if the original people who crucified Jesus Christ knew he was the Lord of glory, they would not have done it. But you know what you know and I know? He is the Lord of glory. We know that even on the cross, the Father did not reject his Son. We know that three days after he died, God the Father raised his Son from the dead. After 40 days, he received him bodily into heaven. He gave him a place of unspeakable honor and power and glory. And today, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is governing, micromanaging the universe. And we know that. Hebrews 1 begins with all of this neat stuff about Jesus right now. This stuff is true about Jesus. And you see, the gospel isn't primarily about you or about me or about us. The gospel isn't about how I feel or how my life is going or what is happening to me if what God is doing or isn't doing from my perspective. The gospel is about Jesus. Do you know if you're saved today, you were saved primarily for his sake and not yours? And that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Because you see, you were made and created and you were saved for his sake. And he's to be worshipped and he's to be honored. In Hebrews chapter 1, God tells, commands the holy angels to worship his son. And he's telling you and me, whether we're in Ukraine with bombs dropping around us or we're in a culture that is literally decaying before our eyes or if we ourselves are in some way decaying, this is not about what God is doing for me because I have no doubt what he's done for me and everything that he's done for me is in his son, Jesus Christ. He, he, he loved me ere I knew him. He chose me from before the foundation of the world. In the fullness of time, his son came into the world. And if there was nobody else, he died for me. And he bore all of the unjust and unfair suffering, not just from people, but from God himself. And God, in Jesus Christ, extinguished and exhausted the wrath of God. Don Theobald and if I say he's not worth that I can't think of five things in my life that have worked out the way I thought they would can you I'm meaning about your life not mine no the journey that I've been on that Marlene and I've been on has twists and turns we would have never imagined and it's not just our life, but we've had the privilege of pastoring other people. And some of the dearest saints go some, through some horrific suffering. Horrific suffering. In their 90s, they get a little spot on their lip. Never smoked, didn't chew, didn't hang around with people that do. And that thing gets bigger and more serious and it's cancer and, and it eventually kills them and you think wow Johnny Erickson you think isn't, isn't it bad enough that she's a quadriplegic now she has cancer and you see if we look at it from our perspective and what God is doing for us and doing in us we're going to be very disillusioned. We're going to be very tempted to pack it in because that's what these guys and gals are doing. I thought things go better with Jesus. He said in this sermon, better, 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 better. And it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. But you see, I wasn't saved for my sake. I was saved for his sake. So that... God can look on people like you and I like he did with Job and he can even say to Satan look at that guy down there and Satan says well 
He's got a supermodel wife. He's got a dual exhaust chariot. He's got all these overachieving kids. He's got the Ponderosa. Who wouldn't want to be a Christian? <laughs> he doesn't love you, God. He loves all the toys. And God says, oh, no, no. There's real faith in that man. You can do everything but kill him. And he does do everything but kill him. And Job never once said, you know, Satan, man. He says, though God slay me, yet I will trust him. As he's standing at the graveside of his children, and he says to his wife, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he doesn't say that as a robot. He's saying that as a real person with feelings and heart and tears and pains and aches and sorrows. And you see, God told us in the Old Testament that there will come a really innocent man who will suffer unjustly. And his name's Jesus. And he will bear everything that you and I should bear, not only in this life, but in the eternities to come. Now, don't mess with that. The apostles went everywhere saying there is no salvation in heaven or on earth except in the name of Jesus Christ. Our culture is foolish, isn't it? trying to tell us that it's in this and that and we're all climbing up different sides of the mountain and we'll meet at the top? No, we won't. Uh, there's a rock and we better be on that rock. And that's the only salvation. Right now, Jesus Christ is not some whimpering old man up in heaven hoping this works out. He's in the power of his perfections and he rules the universe and he is irresistibly drawing a people, red and yellow black and white as we used to sing in Sunday school and he's bringing a great mosaic of people into the church it's easy for us to think the actions here in you know, North America oh the action is all over the place in China in Muslim countries, in Russia, in Ukraine. And there are all these people that will never be known except their names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And they love Jesus more than they love their own life. And you see, that's the issue. Do I love Jesus more than I love me? What keeps me spiritually immature is that I want my stuff right now. And if God isn't going to come through, well, who needs God? I do. I do. My biggest problem isn't a pain in my hip. My biggest problem is my heart. And oh, it needs to constantly be massaged and orientated towards the Lord. Did you read some of those things? Don't let your heart get hard. Don't let your heart become evil. Don't let your heart become unbelieving. How many times did those people in the nation of Israel say, you know, we had a lot better when we were back in Egypt. Man, there we had leeks and onion and garlic. No, not exactly my favorite stuff, but obviously they liked it. And here, morning, noon, and night is manna, but supernaturally fed, cared for, given all kinds of blessings. And these are just foretaste of that rest that they were moving towards. And you see, Satan wants to wear us down and say, you know, you don't need this. And we still have a pretty good, like the children, the people he's writing to in Hebrews. Yeah, it's, it's costly. But you haven't resisted to death yet, have you? You haven't shed blood. That may come in our nations, and maybe sooner than we think. And you think, you see, the thing is that I won't be a little baby and crying and carrying on and then rise to the occasion when I have to stand up for Jesus. 
It's all the little things that build character. All the little things that build persevering faith. All the little things that, that prepare me for the big things. And what this warning is saying, look, at, there's nothing else out there. Nothing except Jesus Christ. Come to him and cling to him and hold on to him for dear life. It will not be in vain. And that's why the end of Hebrews 11, you know, it starts out, this guy did that and she did this. And you're thinking, wow, a miracle a minute. And then he goes on and said, but you know, some were sawn in two. Some wandered in caves. Some were this, some were that. Like, by and large, it doesn't work out like we would think it would. God is not the least bit interested in my memo on how he should govern the next week in my life. What he's interested in is one thing. The glory and the praise and the supremacy and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And he wants me to get with the program. And that's why every time we pray, we never once pray, and in Don's name I pray. We say, in Jesus' name I pray. And what we mean by that is, if what I've just asked for does not further the cause of Jesus Christ, don't answer it. If what I prayed for doesn't bring him honor and applause and worship and adoration, don't answer it. If what I prayed for doesn't minimize me and exalt him, don't answer it. I don't want any prayer. And some Psalms recite the prayers that the people had in the wilderness. And they forgot God and they complained about this. And, they, and it said that God sent them everything they want and gave them leanness to their soul. Oh, the warnings are serious. And we must let them speak very powerfully to us. There's other rooms in the house. And if you keep coming back, this won't all be warnings. Because you see, God mixes. He isn't always saying, you better smarten up. You better smarten up. You better smarten up. He also says, oh, I have promises that are out of this world. I have a son who's out of this world. I have a gospel that's out of this world. Your afflictions are light and momentary no matter how bad they are, compared to the eternal weight of glory. Now, the neat thing about the warnings is, if you work through them biblically, they're pretty neat, aren't they? They almost start sounding like promises. Because they do the very same thing as the promises do, and they point you to Jesus Christ. Now, I hope that all you've got going for you is Jesus. I hope you don't diversify your portfolio because the times are uncertain. I hope you've taken all of your eggs and you put them in one basket. And, and if Jesus goes under, you've got absolutely nothing. But we know he's not going under because he went up. He reigns over the universe today. The next great event on planet Earth is not whether some guy uses a bomb. The next great event on planet Earth that's worth noting is the glorious appearing in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Do you know there's nobody in heaven who regrets being there? There's nobody in heaven who says, well, this is like Disneyland about the third day and you're kind of bored. No. In fact, you know everybody in heaven, what they will do? They will instinctively remove their crowns and put them at the feet of Jesus and say the reward and the blessing and the, and the greatness of this way overextends what we've had to go through. It's you and you alone who deserves the, the honor and the praise and the glory. And not just for a 5, 10, 15 minute standing ovation, but forever and ever and ever and ever. 
we'll never stop praising the Lord. I'm glad I'm going to have a glorified body, aren't you? Not so I can run around and play baseball or something, but so that I will never be fatigued in serving Jesus. I'll never be weary in worshiping him. I'll never tire of delighting in him and feasting my eyes upon him. And he will never tire of me. He's loved me with an everlasting love. He has sung to me. He sings to me. He's going to present me faultless before the Father. And he won't say, well, he's not much, but here he is, Father. He's going to do it with exceeding great joy. Now, he, he, he loved me when nothing existed except him and his Father and the Spirit. And he says, now Don just loved me for 40 or 50 or 60 years down here. And you know what? I'll give you everything you need to love me. I'll even supply the faith and the repentance and the love and the peace and the joy. It's all there. Now just use it. But Don, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't pack it in. It has eternal ramifications. Everybody in hell regrets they're there. In spite of their boast, in spite of their arrogance, in spite of their cockiness, in spite of their books that they've written, there's not a person thrilled in hell forever and ever and ever and ever. They will know the torments of the Lamb. The stakes are high. And we need to go to that room and we need to understand the warnings and we need to let them speak to us and again and again and again and again. Do you remember what we sang tonight? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Wow. I don't know if it's true, but I heard that the man who wrote that hymn eventually left the Lord. A lady was in a stagecoach with the guy who wrote the hymn. And, and uh, she was reading the hymn and she was crying and she was just thrilled with the hymn. And she said she didn't know who the guy was. And, and she said, oh, would you like to look at this? And with great sadness, he says, ma'am, I wrote that hymn. Can you imagine anything more terrible than to say, I, I, I preach sermons on how wonderful Jesus is? Well, that's room two. If you come back tomorrow night, we'll have a peek at room three.